Well, you can turn to your uh, turn in your Bibles to John one. We're I don't know three sermons deep in our new John series. But first, I want to tell you about somebody else. He was uh, he was a mean one, Mister Grinch. He was as cuddly as a cactus and as charming as an eel. No one was as far gone as Mr. Grinch was. He was absolutely hopeless. And he just hated Christmas. Oh, he did not like Christmas time. And he hated the Who's of Whoville because, well, they loved Christmas. And they were so full of light and so full of joy. And it didn't sit well against all the darkness inside meet old Mr. Grinch. Because his heart was an empty hole. And he had garlic in his soul. But by the end of the book, that all changed. And here's why. He took away Christmas and he snuffed out all the lights, but he found that he could not take away their joy. And this witness to the light that they had from within them, a light that the darkness could not overcome, it transformed the Grinch. And his heart, scholars tell us, grew three sizes that day. (laughs) He was reborn. And historians report that he even carved the roast beast at the Christmas dinner later. (laughs) Now, I know that's silly, but it leads us to the question that's actually burning deep in my heart for myself and for you, and I think some of you may be very specifically. Especially when we think about the people who don't have the light within them that we know and love. People we know and love that we're afraid don't know Jesus and may never know Jesus. And the question then that burns in me and burns in me for you is, how can we become who's of Whoville? So full of light, unquenchable hope that no darkness can overcome it, no matter what happens in our circumstances, no matter what lights go out in this world. How do we get like that? In this church family, we've, like just in this little body, we've rubbed shoulders with lots of darkness, tragedy, uh, death, and trauma, and suffering, horrible pain, emotional, physical. Some of you are grappling with diseases that may never go away. Some of you have lost loved ones, not just relationally, but actually to death. And most of us, if not all, love someone dearly who just doesn't love Jesus. And maybe who stiffens their neck and stubbornly refuses to see the light. And I don't know, maybe you want to give up. Maybe we have given up. Or maybe we've forgotten Here's how people like us can get that unquenchable light and hope. We'll have to know these three things from John 1, 6 through 13. And we'll go through them and then I'll try to summarize at the end. The three things, these are three points for the day are this. One, God uses witnesses. Two, the world doesn't know the light. And three, Christians are born of God. So if you haven't turned there already, please turn to John 1, 6 as I pray for the Lord's help. Uh, Father, you know my weakness this morning. You know my uh, 
mental exhaustion and inability to speak, but I remember Moses and know that it's your word and your ability to speak that matters. And this is your word and your people, and I trust you with it. Speak to all of us now, without exception, by your spirit, through your word, better than I speak. And preach Christ to our hearts, please, for his glory and our joy. Amen. 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 I'm going to read the first um, two or three verses, John 1, 6 through 8. This is our first point. God uses witnesses. Starting in verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So we're reading the gospel according to John, right? But this John, this man who bears witness about the light is not that John. It's not the author, John. We're reading here about what other gospels will call John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. The author of this book, John, John the Apostle, John the Evangelist, he doesn't name himself in the book, interestingly. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, which isn't a prideful statement. It's actually very humble of him. But there's You know, these two Johns, John the Baptist and John the author, they actually serve the same function. They're both witnesses and were meant to believe in God through their witness. God may give us faith through the witness of these two Johns. So here we read that John the Baptist came as a witness, quote, that all might believe through him. So that all, big word, might believe through him, through his witness. And in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, the author John tells us his role. He says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So both Johns, John the Baptist, John the author, are witnesses to the light. And through that witness, we are meant to receive faith from God in Jesus. That's what the witness is for, through their their testimony. And by the way, witness and testimony, if you see them in the Bible, are the same words underneath. They're synonyms. They mean the same thing. Now, John the Baptist himself is a very uh, remarkable figure. He's so remarkable that there are even religions that follow him over Jesus. They're not Christian, um, but it's a, it's a real thing. He's a very remarkable person. Jesus says elsewhere, he says, among those born of women, no one is greater than John. He says, but I tell you, even the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he is. But no one's greater than John up to the point of the new covenant. Here's why he was so remarkable. It's because he was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He stood in the line of Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, Elijah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, etc. These great noble men who served God when it was at its hardest. And Hebrews 11 tells us, you know, some were horribly mistreated living in caves and wandering in the wilderness and being martyred. And John the Baptist was the last, kind of like the pinnacle of them. He was, as it were, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. In fact, he's basically 
portrayed in the Gospels as an embodiment of the Old Testament. Think about what you know about John the Baptist. He's sent by God, similar to Moses and Elijah. He was an Israelite living in the wilderness where the Old Testament Israelites spent so much of their time in exile from Eden, in the wilderness after being freed from Egypt, in the wilderness of exile in Babylon and Persia and Assyria. He ate, what did he eat? Two things. Anyone remember? Locusts and honey. Locusts to remind us of the plagues of Egypt and of Joel, and honey to remind us of the bounty of the promised land. And he's wrapped in animal skins. Remember, it says he wore a hairy cloak and a belt, I think, of camel. Like Adam when he left the garden, clothed in an animal skin. Or like, I think as Mo actually pointed out to me some time ago, I never caught this until you did, the tabernacle. On the inside is beautiful and full of gold. On the outside is animal skins. The tabernacle that points to the temple and the temple that points to Jesus. That's John the Baptist's job. As a sort of figure that embodies the themes of the Old Testament, his job is to bear witness about the light because that's the Old Testament's job. That was the job of every prophet, every story, Everything that comes before Matthew points to Jesus. It points to the light. It is a light, but it's not the true light. Like John, the author, writes about Jesus, the true light was coming into the world. That doesn't mean everything else was false. It means he's the ultimate one to which they all pointed. And as John the Baptist himself says later, he must increase and I must decrease. Because that's when a thing is meant to point to something else, when that real thing comes on the scene, then you've done your job. You've served your purpose. You've heralded the king and now the king has come. He was not the light, John the Baptist, but he came to bear witness about the light. The question is, why? Why does God need to use people like John and us why doesn't God just talk to you directly? It's a good question, right? I don't have an answer for that. I wish I did. But I can tell you uh, that though God could have spoken directly to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, he chose to send Moses. And that was a wise choice. And we've all benefited from that. And he could have spoken when David sinned against Bathsheba. God could have come down and convicted David of his sin, but he sent the prophet Nathan to tell a story about a little lamb. And it was better that way. And he could have spoken directly to King Hezekiah, but he sent the prophet Isaiah, etc., etc. Here's why that doesn't bother me. It's two reasons. Two reasons why not knowing the answer doesn't bother me. One, because it lifts up and dignifies creatures like us. The king could come directly, but there's something so ennobling about the king laying his hand on your shoulder and saying, will you go speak for me? I'm going to give you my words. Would you do me the privilege of announcing them to people? There's such nobility and dignity in that. And the second reason is because a testimony is best established by two or three witnesses. 
And we have less grounds to dismiss God when he speaks through witnesses and confirms that witness himself. And he's given us so many witnesses. So many things testify to the truth of God. The Bible itself is a giant witness. It's a collection of 66 books through so many genres that all bear witness about the one who would call himself the truth. The spirit of God lives in the children of God and bears witness to our own spirits. The Bible says, who knows the heart of a man and the mind of a man, but his spirit. God's spirit searches God's heart and witnesses to that part of us that searches our own hearts as well and says that's true. It's the ring of truth inside. People like me, preachers, bear witness. Teachers, professors, bear witness. We testify. Evangelists, you, when you share anything about Jesus, that's true, with your neighbor, your friend, your mom, your dad, your coworker, your cousin, you are bearing witness. You are testifying. And Psalm 19 and Romans 1 tell us that nature itself bears witness to God and is just singing his glory. I don't know why. But the whole world that we're wrapped up in is involved in testifying to God. And I think it's best that way. I think he knows what he's doing. The fact is that God could save people, and he does. He does save people directly sometimes. But his ordinary means of bringing us to saving faith is through the witness of others. Through the witness of scripture, the friend, the parent, whatever. That's his ordinary means. That's why Paul says this in Romans 10. He says, how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So the beautiful feet of John the Baptist, they're probably not beautiful, but you know what I mean, Um, the beautiful feet of John stand in the wilderness, declaring to those of us on the outside that God has come for you. And our text says that he bore witness about the light so that all might believe through him. I said, that's a big word. Each of the four gospels begins with the witness of John the Baptist. The fact is, if you've come to a saving faith in Jesus today, On some level, it's through the witness of this man that lived 2,000 years ago. This last of the Old Testament prophets. So we have already, we can testify that we have faith through his testimony. And God's word is true. Jesus said, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he you might think yourself least in the kingdom of God. But you're greater than John the Baptist. You might have come to faith yesterday by grace through faith. Jesus says you're greater than John the Baptist. That's crazy. But you're full of the Holy Spirit. You have the new covenant promises of God. You're on this side of the cross to say, not... Here's the sacrifice that is going to take away the sins of the world, but rather you point 
to the risen Lamb of God himself and say, my sins are gone because of him. You're greater than John. And you have a greater testimony than John. And now your beautiful feet are being sent out into the wilderness of this world. No matter how much you know, no matter how new you are to this, you do not need a seminary degree to be a witness to Christ. You are ready. And God has ordained. God uses witnesses. That's what I want you to understand, this first point. God uses witnesses. He has ordained that through you, just testifying about him, people will get saved. That's dignifying. Now, the second thing we need to know, number two, the world doesn't know the light. Let's read from verses 9 through 11. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now, there's a fascinating little creature that I was going to put a picture up, and I forgot, but it's kind of too gross anyway. Um, it's called the naked mole rat. Kids, have you guys seen a naked mole rat pictures? Yeah. <laughs> what is it? You want to describe it, William? What does it look like? Naked. <laughs> a naked mix between a mole and a rat. That's a great description. It's a weird, shrivelly little creature that has no hair whatsoever. But what's really striking about the naked mole rat is it spends its whole life deep underground, and it has eyes, but it doesn't have the use of its eyes. It can't see the light. In fact, I don't know whether it was sort of, you know, something that occurred over a long period of time or whether this was by design, but they have skin over their eyes. What's the point? I don't know. But it spent too much time in the darkness, and it cannot know the light. Even if you were to bring it out of its hole, it wouldn't know. Or if you were to send the light down into the hole, it doesn't know the light. Perhaps a more fitting illustration, again, too gross to put a picture on screen, is Gollum from Lord of the Rings. Gollum was once hobbit-like, you know, living, laughing, and playing on the banks of a river in a nice, uh, nice little cottage with his grandmother and fishing, singing, until he did such a foul deed one day that his shame and guilt and social rejection drove him into a hole and he went deep, deep into the, like, just the roots of the mountain and didn't see the light for hundreds of years. He was in deepest darkness. And he didn't lose the use of his eyes like the rat. But rather, even though he could see the light, he hated it. It hurt. It made him feel so seen and so exposed. That's how John describes the world. That's how John describes me before God made me born again. Just Gollum. I could see the light. I just didn't love it. What has happened to us creatures that we've grown so accustomed 
to our darkness, that the light is abhorrent to us. Or to put it another way, what foul thing have we eaten that has so changed our taste buds that the flavor of the fruit of the tree of life becomes repulsive to us? It's unthinkable. So is sin. But the question is, what would it take for our eyes to be opened and our senses to be renewed and our taste buds restored so that we start to love the light? Is it even possible? Well, seven chapters later in the book of John, Jesus is debating this very thing with a group of Pharisees who were very much opposed to his ministry and on the defense. And here's what Jesus says. I'm going to read uh, six verses or so from John chapter 8. The Pharisees say to Jesus, We have one Father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Those are hard words. If you've ever been taught the picture of like the soft philosopher Jesus who doesn't offend people, that's not the real Jesus. The truth can be very hard to hear, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. Before any of us were of God, we were of the devil. By which he means we had no capacity to love the light or to hear the word of life. And so we did what the darkness does. What hope is there then if we are not of God? Are we doomed? It's a valid question. Well, that takes us to point number three. Christians are born of God. These are our last two verses, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now notice, before John tells us how God makes Christians, he gives us three negatives of how Christians aren't made. Did you catch that? I've been, at a friend's suggestion, I've been chewing through the grammar with some help um, recently. And it's interesting that the, the main verb of this sentence is the word born, right? So in fact, it, it, it reads most literally, he gave the right to become children of God who not of bloods, nor of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. 
The emphasis is on born of God. That's how we're born. But before he emphatically lands there, he says three things that don't cause us to be born. First, he says we're born not of blood. In other words, it doesn't matter who your mom and dad are. It has nothing to do with your lineage. Jews don't get more saved or saved more often than Gentiles. It's not a lineage issue. It has nothing to do with your nationality, your ethnicity, your color, your citizenship. Americans don't get more saved or saved more often than the rest of the world. That's not the point. That's not how the will of God works in making Christians. He's not interested in where you're from. Who were born not of blood. Second, nor of the will of the flesh. In other words, it has nothing to do with sweat equity. It has nothing to do with effort and exertion. If you see the light and you go, I don't love the light, but if I try hard enough and do better, maybe he'll give me all the privileges of a child of the light. And so then you work to turn your life around and you stop doing the bad things and you start doing the good things and you read your Bible more and you go to church and you sing all the right songs, but in your heart, you don't love the light. Sweat equity, the will of the flesh cannot make a Christian. It has to come from somewhere else. So can it come from the will of man? That's the third thing he says. It's nor from the will of man. In other words, my job is to testify to you about Jesus once a week and hopefully in between as well, right? That's my job. Now, if you don't know Jesus, it doesn't matter how much I want you to know Jesus. I can't make you a Christian. The will of this man has nothing to do with your salvation. Don't get me wrong, I want it. But my will doesn't have the potency required, doesn't have the power required to move someone from darkness to light. All I can do is testify. And I have to trust someone with a potent will to do the work. So how are Christians made? How do mole rats have the skin removed from their eyes? How does Gollum get redeemed and love the light of God? Of God. It has to be him. He will do it. Nothing else can. No one else can. Christians are born from God. He uses lots of things. He uses the testimony of scripture and the witness of nature. Look, if, you have, if you've read any of the Puritans from 400 years ago, they're constantly walking around looking at the flowers going, wow, the flowers are awesome. And they tell me about Jesus. We don't do that anymore. It's a lost art. All those things testify and God will use them to give us faith. But those are the means, not the source. It's from God. It's of God. This is how Peter says it. And I wrote down 2 Peter. I think it might be 1 Peter. Um, let's check. I've got a Bible right in front of me. 1 Peter, I think. Anytime I quote scripture, you're always welcome to flip and check that I'm getting it right. 
It is first Peter. Ha ha. First Peter one, three to four. Listen to this. Listen, listen for agency for where your Christian, your salvation is from. Listen, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power, not your power, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God has caused us to be born again. Now, in our experience, there was a moment when I was 19 where I knelt on my bedroom floor at midnight and said, I give up. You win. You're Savior and Lord, and I'm yours. My will was involved. I believed a testimony, and I received and believed. I did a thing, but it was all from God. You know how I know? It's because I was sitting there watching a movie about Bob Dylan. I wasn't praying. I wasn't seeking the Lord. I wasn't reading the Bible. God interrupted my life and said, it's time for you to serve me like I served you. I was born of God. All who are born again are born of God. So yes, God uses testimony as a means of salvation, but he remains the source. Now, because we're down to one car and snow and all that, uh, Becca and the kids had to come in early with me this morning. And uh, Becca used the griddle that we have downstairs in the kitchen to make breakfast for the kids and myself and uh, Taylor. (laughs) And... You know, I'm glad that was there. I'm glad we had the griddle. But I'm not going to thank the griddle for breakfast. It was just the means. I love the griddle. I appreciate the griddle. I'm going to pay attention to the griddle and take care of the griddle. But I love my wife who made the food in a different way. And I'm thankful to her, not the thing. Do you see what I'm getting at? Love the testimony. Listen to the testimony. Don't get away from this. Listen to good preaching. But don't love it like you love the source. God uses means, but he's the one from whom all blessings flow. Which means that I'm preaching to you this morning, but behind my words, stands a preacher whose will has potency and power. And if I say light, nothing happens. When God said light, light came into existence. That's who's preaching. In his book titled Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, which by the way, if this is a difficult topic for you, I recommend. uh, It's by J.I. Packer, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. I think it's in the introduction, Packer makes this point, that um, no matter what we think about the idea of God being in total control, which is what we mean by sovereignty, we're all 
that kind of Christian when we pray. Because no one prays, you know, God praise me for making me a Christian. We all understand when we're on our knees before Christ that it's of God, that we're born of God. We say, thank you for making me a Christian. I was in a pit and you lifted me up. I was sinking in the mire and you put my feet on solid ground. Thank you for making me a Christian. We all believe that in prayer. God makes us Christians through the testimonies about the light. And through those testimonies, he gives us faith. And by that faith, through that faith, he saves us. By grace, as Ephesians says. It's a gift. Now, as I wrap this up, I have four points of application um, in case you're like, over, information overload, what do I do with that? Four hopefully simple-ish next steps um, for how to, how to move forward. And I pray that these will help you have a life of unquenchable light and hope. The first one is bear witness to the light. Don't just hear about, you know, God uses witnesses and be like, cool, I'm glad someone's on that. That's our job, friends. If you have been pulled from darkness to light, then you are a child of God and you now have a story. So share it. Peter says somewhere, be ready to give an account for the hope that lies within you. In your workplace, dinner tables, whatever, you can be a beacon of gospel light. You know, it was, I think two years ago, I had coffee with a young man, Caliber Coffee, Donaldson Hermitage area, um, early morning. He wasn't sure what he thought about Jesus. And he asked me why I'm sure. Do you know what I said? Not much. I, I fumbled, I broke. I didn't have words. I hadn't thought about it for that context in that way. Never again. I haven't seen him since. And I just pray the Lord brings somebody who is ready to give up an account for the hope that lies within them. Because I wasn't. That's okay. I've talked to Jesus about it. He knows our frame. You never have to beat yourself up for missteps in the past or inadequacies in the past. Jesus fills all in all, not us. We're just human. But everyone is an opportunity to go, Lord, would you help me know my story with you? Can you remind me of why I love you so much? And then help me to walk the next person through that story over a cup of coffee. Um, that's the first point of application. Bear witness to the light. You've got a story. Work on it. Don't beat yourself up about it. Think about it. Pray about it. Talk to friends about it. Help each other with that. Number two, don't lose heart. When the world doesn't know the light, remember, I already knew that. That's not a surprise. We read the Bible to remember what the world is really like. You know, somewhere in um, John chapter two, no, John somewhere, Jesus knew what was in the heart of man and for his part, he did not entrust himself to them. How did Jesus know it was in the heart of man? He was a student of scripture. The Bible reminds us what we're like 
That's how we know ourselves. That's how we know this world. So don't be surprised when the world doesn't love the light. Don't get discouraged. You share Jesus and people don't flock to the altar call. Doesn't always work that way. Don't lose heart. You know, 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, Paul's talking about the reality that for many people in the world, a veil lies over their face when they look at Christ. They can't see him clearly. They can't love the light. And Paul says, what do we do about that? We have a ministry of preaching Christ to people with veiled eyes who can't see him. Here's what he says, 2 Corinthians 4.1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, do not lose heart. Paul says, this very ministry is a gift that we don't deserve. So God is the God who gives things to people that they don't deserve. He makes fountains from flint. He lifts veils so we do not lose heart. God has it in hand. You might have been praying for someone for 20 years. Do not lose heart. The Lord is more merciful than you are. He loves that person more than you do, believe it or not. He wants it more than you do. And his will is powerful. And he's wise. And you can trust him. Number three of four, so we're nearly done. Um, If you have believed the testimony about Jesus, then John chapter 1, 6 through 13 tells us he gave you the exousian, the right, the authority to become a child of God. The naked mole rat becoming royalty. Come on. That's amazing. So remember your inheritance. You're a child of the king. Romans 8, 16 through 17 says this. The spirit, capital S, God's spirit himself, because the spirit of God is a person. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You could sit on that one for a while. You're an heir of God. You get what Christ gets in the inheritance. So you will suffer here for a little while. And then you'll enter into glory. Not as a a golem or a mole, but as a child of God. Children of the light. And as a child of God, you have the authority, the right to bear witness about him. You get to tell people what your father is like, like no one else can. You're his child. You have the right also, the right to eternal life. Not because you earned it, right? Not not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but because you've been born of God. And Christ died for you to have that. Lastly, four, number four, the fourth application point. Do the works your father does. If you've been brought from darkness to light, if God has born you, 
Can you say it that way? You know what I mean. If you've been born again of God, now God is your father. That's why Jesus says, right before he ascends, he says, I'm going to my father and to your father. That's a stunning statement. In other words, love one another. That's how Jesus showed that he was of God, is his love. 1 Peter 1, 22 and 23 says it this way. Quote, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Turn that inside out. If you've encountered the word of God and it's come alive to you, and you have faith where you didn't have faith before, then God has done a thing and made you be born again. And if that's true of you, then live like it. Love like it. Do what your father does. If you love the father, model your life after him. Love. Take the next step. If that's not practical enough, too vague. Love one another. Okay, that's vague. Think of one thing today, one way you could take a step towards someone that's difficult to love and show them more warmth, more love, more kindness. Just pick one person and take one step. It might just be a text message. That's okay. Love one another. Do the works your father does. The Holy Spirit lives in you. The Holy Spirit of God lives in you. The resources of the king of the universe are at your fingertips to do his will. The strength of Jesus Christ is being offered to you and he knows your frame. And if you have been forgiven much, like I have, then you've got more love to give than you think. And you can trust him with the rest. You cannot make anyone be born again. That's God's work. But God is good at it. Praise God. Uh, Let's prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. And I'll, I'll pray. Father, we do praise you um, and extol you and admire you for your absolute sovereignty and power. And if you had that kind of power without radiant, glorious, undiminished goodness, then we'd be terrified. But you're both powerful and so kind. And so we trust you to be full of steadfast love, full of faithfulness. We trust you to be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We trust you to be gentle and merciful and just. And we trust you to know what's best. Help us to witness. Help us to love. For the glory of Christ. Amen.